This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. One of the most exciting things in sports is to see a truly great player shatter all previous assumptions about what is possible to achieve in the game. No! Not possible! Not possible! But while fans applaud and announcers lose their minds, opposing teams scramble to find strategies to stop these greats. In basketball, they tried to stop Shaquille O'Neal by immediately fouling him when he got the ball so that he'd have to shoot from the free throw line, which he wasn't very good at. This strategy became known as the hack-a-shack. As we immediately have a hack-a-shack call, I don't believe it. Five seconds in. In soccer, opposing teams continuously fouled the great Argentinian player Leo Messi to keep him from dribbling through their defense. It's right over the top into the knee of Messi. That is absolutely scandalous. These tactics to stop the great players can be aggressive, and they often stretch the limits of the rulebook. That's Neil Payne bringing us our story today. He's from 538, the data journalism site owned by ESPN. But in baseball, they did it differently. In baseball, the solution to stopping the greatest hitter of all time was to actually redesign the game itself. It all started in the 1940s with the great Ted Williams. Famously, he would say that when he grew up, he wanted to be the greatest hitter who ever lived. Ben Bradley Jr. wrote the definitive biography of Ted Williams. Before a game in the clubhouse, he would put up a mirror and strip down to his skivvies and swing a bat and say, I'm Ted Williams. I'm the best hitter who ever lived. Pardon my French. Not a humble man, Ted Williams, but also not wrong. In 1941, the young Red Sox superstar finished the year with a batting average of 406, meaning that he got a hit in over 40% of his at-bats, which is incredibly good. No one has batted above 400 since Ted Williams. Ted Williams, the greatest hitter of them all. Special pitches, Williams swings, there's a high drive, going deep, deep, it is a home And Williams kept it up. He even left to fight in World War II, came back, and was still the best hitter in baseball. But in 1946, just as Ted Williams was on track for another record-breaking year, he came face-to-face with someone hell-bent on ending his streak, a guy with the Cleveland baseball team named Lou Boudreau. Boudreau was a shortstop for the Indians, but he was also the manager of the team, because back then you could actually be both a player and a manager at the same time. He was an incredibly ambitious person and a great player. But despite Boudreaux's success, there was this other player that got all the attention. Ted Williams, the greatest hitter who ever lived. Williams got most of the headlines praise for as what of being such a great hitter. That's Russell Schneider. He covered the Indians for the Cleveland Plain Dealer and became close with Lou Boudreaux. Knowing Boudreaux as I think I did, there's no doubt but this was a clash of egos between Williams and Boudreaux. But Boudreaux had a plan. He knew that Williams almost always hit the ball to the right side of the field between first and second base. As the Indians manager, he could actually set up his team's strategy specifically to beat Williams. The boys whisper that Lou Boudreaux, Cleveland manager, is burning the midnight oil, perfecting a new type of defense for Ted. Lou sat down and he said, I'm tired of having Williams beat us. 
and this is what I want to do. Lou Boudreau decided that he would shift three players from the left side of the field to the right. He put a wall of three infielders between first and second base with a trio of outfielders backed up behind them. Now six of the seven defenders were standing on the right side of the field. Only one lonely outfielder remained on the left. The familiar symmetry of the baseball diamond had been disrupted. And with it, the Ted Williams shift was born. I call it the Boudreaux shift. Some people call it the defensive shift or just the shift. The first time Boudreaux used the shift on Williams was July 14th, 1946 at Fenway Park. When Williams stepped into the plate and saw the shift for the first time, he said to the umpire, what the hell is going on out there? They can't do that. But they could. Totally legal. And so Williams had a choice. Swing just like he'd always swung, and he might hit a home run. But he might also hit the ball into the crowd of defenders shifted to his right. Or he could go outside his comfort zone and try to hit the ball to the left. Boudreaux knew that it would be difficult for Ted to alter his swing, that he saw himself as a slugger, a home run hitter, and that therefore he would continue doing it his way. That's Ben Bradley again, who wrote the Ted Williams biography. He was appealing to to Williams' pride. And it worked. The first time Williams came up to bat, he hit straight into the teeth of the shift. In fact, he hit the baseball right to Boudreaux himself, standing directly between first and second base. Boudreaux kept using the shift on Williams, and pretty soon, other teams were using it against him, too. It wasn't long at all, maybe within a week or two, that the rest of the American League was adopting it. But Williams uh, argued that, no, he wasn't going to alter his natural swing, that the fans were showing up at the park to see him hit. In interviews, Williams said he thought the shift shaved about 15 points off of his lifetime batting average. In fact, It's probably the only tactic that ever actually had an effect on Ted Williams. Eventually, Ted Williams retired, and the shift, it more or less disappeared from baseball. A lot of managers were hesitant to use it because it didn't always work. When it goes bad, you look bad. This is John Dewan, the author of The Fielding Bible, and a guy you'd be safe calling the godfather of shift data. And he says for a long time, teams didn't have the kind of data that would back up the idea that risk would pay off over time. You know, there weren't real strong analytics back in the 70s and 80s that could tell you this kind of thing would work. But then sabermetrics came along. Sabermetrics is a movement in baseball that started in the 90s to collect data and study it to find advantages. Suddenly, GMs and front offices across the major leagues were focused on this idea that to win without spending much money, all you had to do was look at the numbers. Enter the Tampa Bay Rays, formerly known as the Devil Rays. It was regarded as, um, you know, maybe the worst franchise in all of baseball for quite a while. That's Jonah Carey, a journalist who wrote a book about the Rays. They just didn't really understand what it took to win. This is this is bad baseball. Four defensive miscues have cost the Devil Rays dearly in the eighth. But things started changing for the Rays in the mid two thousands. Stuart Sternberg, former partner at Goldman Sachs, decided he was going to buy the team. And with him, he brought a bunch of other Wall Street types. You know, number guys, quants, guys who were good at using data to find hidden advantages. His theory was, let's just succeed and be 2% better than the competition. The Rays number crunchers studied the data, and they discovered a really efficient tactic that could help their fielding and defense. 
a tactic dredged up from baseball's distant past. You guessed it, the defensive shift. The shift really is a perfect example of, of an extra 2% advantage because the shift, frankly, doesn't work all the time. In fact, it fails quite a bit. But the Rays didn't have much to lose, so they decided to take a risk and bring back the shift. And they hire a manager for the team who's on board with their plan, a guy by the name of Joe Madden. And right away, Madden starts using the shift on all kinds of different hitters. Joe Madden, he's kind of the doctor and the master of the defensive shift. Interesting shift. We haven't really seen one like this against Hardy, but Joe Madden has come up with all kinds of interesting shifts this year. Sure. Ball foul. I mean, you don't really, Rod, see this type of shift all that often against a guy like uh, Peralta. And all of a sudden, really just this disaster of a team become this airtight team that you can't score runs off their pitchers. Ground ball to second. Elon Murray's got it. From nowhere, they transformed themselves from a perpetual doormat to a championship contender. And the shift was right at the center of their resurgence. The shift caught on. All of a sudden, every team in the league started shifting. In fact, other teams began shifting against the Rays' own best hitters, including this guy. My name is Carlos Pena, and I played Major League Baseball for 14 seasons. Carlos Pena grew up playing baseball as a kid in the Dominican Republic. And being a power hitter, he believed, was his ticket to the U.S. We swing away, uh, you know, off the island. We have to. Uh, that's, that's, that's the way we, we were taught. You know, if we want to make it to the major leagues, you better be swinging for some power. Carlos Pena, and there's a fly ball deep to right field. Way back, Kelly, and that's And swing for power he did. Carlos Pena hit 46 home runs in 2007 while playing for the Rays, right around the same time Joe Madden was reintroducing the shift to the major leagues. And there's a high fly ball back into right field. Gone! And hits number 46. That was 2007. I hit 46. 2008, I had the shift on me. And the shift is absolutely a killer. And here's Pena. Ground ball right into the teeth of the shift. And Lopez from short right field throws out Pena. Wind and pitch to him. You're know, like, wait a second, you know, is this the way it's going to be, you know, for the rest of my career? And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. And he lines this one right to Johnson, who had him played between first and second in the ship. Even the greats like Pena can't hit home runs all the time. When Pena was shifted on, he had to make a decision. Do I swing my natural swing and maybe get a home run or maybe hit straight into the shift? Or do I change my swing? Eventually... Unlike Williams, whose ego led him to try to power through the shift, Pena started to adopt another tactic. He did something Ted Williams had only tried a handful of times during his whole career. Shift is on for Pena. And he bunts the ball third base side. Carlos Pena bunted. The humble bunt. There's nothing pretty about this move. You just kind of bonk the ball with your bat and it dribbles out onto the field. Bunting was something that players traditionally did just to move their teammates from one base to another. But Carlos Pena turned the bunt into his own secret weapon. Using the bunt, Pena could tap the ball toward third base, where no one was around to pick it up. And it worked a lot of the time, even if he didn't always feel good about using it. It felt like I was giving in. You know, like I was saying, okay, you guys got me, I'm just going to bunt. That's kind of silly, but... In reality, sometimes as uh, prideful athletes, we think that. I'm like, no, man, play the game. 
Pena knew he had to swallow his pride, but it went against everything he had learned growing up. I grew up watching home runs, home runs, home runs, and all I wanted to do was hit home runs. That's what was celebrated. You know, no one said, that's great bond, son. <laughs> Pena's bunts, though, they were actually great. At one point in his career, he was 15 for 25 on bunts against the ship. Carlos Pena becomes one of the most prolific bunters in the majors against the ship. Fastball inside. And it's bunted. How about that? Great play. A two-strike bunt by Pena. Pena says his success at combating the shift has actually changed the way the game is played, but he's not happy about it. Man, the shift is just a nemesis. The shift is something that I wish that they could uh, get rid of. New baseball commissioner Rob Manfred actually agrees with Pena. Here he is talking to ESPN about how he wants to improve the game. Things like eliminating shifts, I would be open to those sorts of ideas. Manfred thinks the shift makes the game less exciting because it makes it harder for teams to score runs. He also thinks it's just happening too much now. Shift is on. As the shift is on. There it is. Shift is on. The shift is on for the Rockies defensively. In many ways, the fight about the shift has become a fight over the nature of the game. Ever since sabermetrics came along, baseball fans and pundits and players have bristled at the idea that on-field decisions are basically a product of data analysis. That could be maddening uh, to many players. It's like, wait, this kid from Harvard who has never you know, throwing a baseball. It's deciding my future. Oh, that angers players like you wouldn't believe. But unless there's a rule change, the field will keep shifting because it works. Oh, it's it's huge. It is really huge. According to John Dewan, the author of The Fielding Bible, it can help win about three extra games a year, which is significant. Three wins, I think every single year has separated a team from getting into the playoffs or not. Teams are not going to give up that competitive advantage. So now it's a fight between the number guys and the traditionalists, between the nerds and the jocks, to decide the design of the game. In the meantime, if my boys ever decide to take up baseball, I'm going to make sure and tell them, great bunt, son. 99% Invisible was a collaboration this week with 538, the data journalism site owned by ESPN. It was produced by Joe Sykes with editing from Jody Avergan and adapted for 99PI by Katie Mingle. Special thanks to sports reporter Neil Payne. Neil is a panelist on 538 sports podcast Hot Takedown, and they're doing a whole series of documentaries called Ahead of Their Time about players and coaches who were doing something radical but weren't appreciated in their era. You can find them all at 538.com slash podcasts or by searching Hot Takedown in your favorite podcast app. 99% 99% Invisible is the aforementioned Katie Mingle, plus Kurt Kolstad, Sharif Youssef, Sam Greenspan, Avery Truffleman, Emmett Fitzgerald, Taryn Mazza, Delaney Hall, and me, Roman Mars. We are a project of 91.7 KALW San Francisco and produced on Radio Row in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. To all the beautiful nerds out there who donated during our fundraiser, thank you so much. And thanks to Podster Magazine and FreshBooks for putting up generous challenge grants that motivated us to hit our goals in the wee hours of the morning. Our listener support makes us strong and helps us try new things. It wouldn't be Radiotopia without you. 
99% Invisible is supported by Article, makers of mid-century modern and Scandinavian furniture. Article furniture is both beautiful and affordable and is shipped direct to you, eliminating the need for a middleman. Article furniture ships for a flat $49 and offers a 30-day, no-questions-asked return guarantee. I ordered the Walnut Seno sideboard for us to put our awards on in the office. It was tough to choose, and it was very tough to get something for the office instead of just keeping something for myself in my house. Visit their website at article.com slash 99PI to get $50 off your first order. As freelancers, running your business efficiently and being creative should never be mutually exclusive. In fact, our friends at FreshBooks believe that the more efficient you are at running your business, the more time you'll have to let your creativity flourish. FreshBooks has just launched an all-new version of their cloud accounting software, so right now happens to be the best time to give FreshBooks a try. FreshBooks has been completely redesigned from the ground up and custom-built for the way you work. Get ready for the simplest way to be more productive, organized, and most importantly, get paid quickly. I've tried it out. It's really well designed. The invoicing, accepting online payments, and keeping track of expenses couldn't be simpler. To find out how the all-new FreshBooks can save you time and boost your creativity, go to freshbooks.com slash 99PI and enter 99PI in the How Did You Hear About Us section. And finally, this show and Radiotopia from PRX exists because of the coin-carrying listeners who donate to us. I know who you are. The Knight Foundation and MailChimp. 12 million people use MailChimp to connect to their customers, market their products, and grow their businesses every day. MailChimp helped us grow by giving us a place to tell more stories. This week, we have two visual stories in the newsletter. One about tile mosaics in the New York City subway system, and a second story about decoding old cemetery symbols. Get a link to those stories on the 99PI MailChimp newsletter, which you can subscribe to on 99pi.org. But to find out how to send better email of your own, tell more stories, and sell more stuff, go to MailChimp.com. You can find the show and join discussions about the show on Facebook. You can tweet at me at Roman Mars and the show at 99PI.org. We're on Instagram and Tumblr, too. But the nexus of all things 99PI is at 99PI.org. Radiotopia.